Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Lost in Science. It is yet another roughly half an hour's worth of science uh, for your brainial entertainment. Um, My name is Chris and joining me, as always, I have Stu. How are you, Stu? I'm very well. How are you? Uh, I am I'm, I am well as well, Stu, and it's good to hear that you are, you're doing well. And we also have a very special uh, guest presenter this week. We have Kationa Nugent-Robertson. Hello, Kationa. Hello, Chris and Stu. It's very exciting to be here. It is amazing to have you uh, on the show. Um, we are very excited. Um, now you are filling a bit of a gap while Claire is off working on another project. Uh <laughs> Which um, I think we're not really discussing just yet what that project is. It's a surprise for our listeners. Is that right, Stu? I, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but yeah. No. <laughs> we'll leave yeah, it up to okay. her to decide. Yeah, we'll update you on that project when it, um, uh, yeah, when it eventuates. Um, now, Katrina, now I believe you have come on to tell us a bit about your work. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, first of all? Yeah, sure. I'm an immunologist. So I studied the immune system at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Very long title. Um, and I've just finished my PhD and I'm very glad that that's over. Um, Fantastic. Yay. But I'm also a science communicator. Or rather, I consider myself a science communicator. And I work teaching at the University of Melbourne and at ScienceWorks. That's amazing. Uh, look, we also consider ourselves science communicators on here. So you're in good company. <laughs> Um, and I believe you're going to tell us a bit about your uh, recently submitted PhD work in immunology. Yeah. Is that correct? Absolutely. Fantastic. And, you know, immunology couldn't be more of a um, pressing concern for the world at the moment, yeah. I reckon. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be great to get some uh, yeah, some expert views on that uh, from yourself. Yeah, I don't know about expert views on what's going on in the world, but I can certainly talk about what I know. <laughs> great. Uh, and speaking of experts and what's going on in the world, um, Stu is also going to present us some science. Is that correct, Stu? Yes, I am going to be talking about what a stressful place it is to live in the city. Um, <laughs> looking at some recently published research about, uh, you know, what maybe why the, the city makes people stressed. What is the stress that they feel and why... Uh, going and getting back to nature can actually help relieve people's stress. Um, it is a big issue because obviously uh, there's, a, there's a lot of research to show that people who live in the city are under a great deal more stress than people who don't live in cities. Um, and more than half the population live in cities. So it is a bit of a problem. And it also has impacts on uh, mental health in general as well, just... Um, the, the build-up of stress. So this is some really interesting research about uh, what people might be able to do to maybe relieve some of that stress and how it actually works. Great. And this is um, 
any particular cities? Like, this is cities in general, not just one particular city you're talking about? Well, here? the research was done in our particular city. It was done in Berlin, but um, I think the uh-huh. uh, the findings will apply pretty widely um, and it'll make a lot of sense when you hear what they, what they have found. Great. Uh, well, um, I'm looking forward to um, both stories, I guess, about our collective well-being. I'm going to join a, a tenuous string there and we'll <laughs> see how well that string holds up. Uh, great. On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and as I said in the introduction, we have Katrina Nguyen-Robertson joining us uh, this week, uh, and she's going to tell us a bit about her uh, recently submitted PhD research in the field of immunology. I'm sure there's a lot more detail. Uh, what exactly have you been working on, Katrina? Well, I study a special group of immune cells called T-cells, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with T-cells, given that our immune systems have really been in the spotlight lately. Um, but they're one of the main drivers of defense against infection, and they kind of act like security guards patrolling the body to determine whether the molecules within your cells are self or not self. And if they see something that's not self, like, oh, an invading bacteria or virus, then they become activated and they sound the alarm for the rest of the immune system. So they kind of have two roles. Right. Are they, um, are they white blood cells? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So a, a special type of immune cell or, or white blood cell that can either orchestrate the whole immune response. So they're kind of like the, the heroes that have a whole range of superpowers and, and sort of control everything. Um, or they can also be killers and they'll just go in and they see, oh, something's infected. I'll kill it. And that kind of is like quarantine, except more extreme quarantine, I guess. If you kill an infected cell, the infection can't spread. Right. Yeah, we haven't got quite that far with (laughs) quarantine measures, I think. No, no, thankfully not. We heard a bit about, I think, T-cells, I think, in the the, pandemic, the recent pandemic, which people keep telling us is over, but some of us aren't convinced. (laughs) No. Um, So they, like, are they involved with the antibodies that build up after, say, a vaccine, or are they kind of the first level of attack? Uh, in the process that's that's a good question in that you know what you wouldn't have antibodies if it weren't for (laughs) t-cells so t-cells are just super special um but but you're right in that there are i guess layers of defense so you do have kind of innate we call it innate immune responses that they're not very specific but they're just there to to fight against anything and everything um they're very fast acting but the innate immune system or that first innate response things like mucus that you have in in your nose to trap things or or skin that really is just a barrier against anything that's trying to invade um they're not specific but they they aren't the best um so that's why we have things like t cells and antibodies that that you mentioned that are a little bit more specific so you'd have antibodies that bind a particular bit of a virus like the SARS-CoV-2 virus, Um, or you'd have T-cells that recognize a specific part, again, of a very specific virus or bacterium. Okay. And so what was your research, uh, or what is your research (laughs) to do with T-cells? What are you studying? 
So most T cells, they recognize peptides, which are essentially broken down proteins. So whether that's proteins that come from a virus or proteins that come from yourself, because we're constantly making all sorts of different proteins. Um, so, so that's what most T cells recognize, but I'm a little bit of a hipster and the conventional T cells, they're a bit too mainstream for me. So I study, uh, T cells that recognize oils and fat. Oh, yeah. Is that a special kind of T cell? Are they, are they distinct from the other T cells that look for peptides? Yes. Yes, they are. And, and I'm trying to work out how they look different, how they act different, um, why are they different? Uh, but they do seem to kind of bridge that, that innate response that I was talking about, which is kind of your first line of defense with the, what we call adaptive immune response, which is that those antibodies and those conventional normal T cells, uh, that, that recognize very, very specific things that are trying to invade. So it kind of, helps crosstalk. And what I'm trying to do is, is work out how are they doing this um, and, and what sort of diseases do they play a role in and how do they work in healthy people as well. Because that's what I was going to ask is like, is are there a lot of oils and fats getting into our bodies that need to be defended against? Because like, you know, we we're talking about uh, COVID and SARS-CoV-2 mm-hmm. and you know, the vaccines, which um, I think most people are aware they target the the proteins, the spike mm. protein on the outside of the virus. So I kind I think we kind of the idea that they, that the um, these T cells or the white blood cells attack proteins is pretty standard. But where are these fats and oils coming from? Well, it's it's less so for viruses, and um, the the reason that we are designing vaccines that that fight the the peptides and, and the sort of protein component of of the virus is that um, usually the the fats come from our own cells. So a virus's fats aren't really any different to ours. And so you don't really want to attack that um, because they kind of just steal from us. But um, when it comes to bacteria, it's a different story. So I'm particularly focused in the bacterium that causes tuberculosis, which before I started researching this, I I didn't realize that it was still the top infectious killer worldwide. Like it's not a big problem in Australia, but it's really? still a massive problem, yeah, around the world. Um, so the the bacterium that causes tuberculosis or TB, it's covered in unique fat molecules that these T cells that I study, so these immune cells, they can recognize these fats and and target them. So currently, the the tuberculosis vaccine, the BCG vaccine, which maybe you've had, maybe you haven't. You would know if you had it. Like I, I had it as a child and you get this massive scar on your arm. Um, but that vaccine doesn't really work so well or protect you so well as an adult. So I'm trying to work out, could we use these T cells that I'm studying to get T cells or immune cells to like actually mount a response against the fats as well? Because that's the outside wow of the bacteria. So so maybe we can see them first and target them first. Is the actual membrane around the the bacteria that's made of um, lipids, right? Is, yeah. Is that, yeah. And and that's what they can that's what they can identify. Yes. Right. So that's kind of, you know, to to answer the question about, you know, what what sort of fats I guess are trying to invade. Well, yeah, fats on the outside or, or lipids. the the technical term, on the outside of bacteria. But, but during my PhD, 
I had an allergic reaction to sunscreen. And uh, as you do, as an immunologist, you do some detective work and you're like, oh, an allergy. I wonder what caused this. And um, I, I looked at the ingredients of the sunscreen that I used, compared it to all the ingredients of sunscreens that I'd previously used and not had a problem with. And turns out one of those ingredients that I never used was an oil that had the wow. right kind of shape to, to trigger the very T cells, the very immune cells that I work on. Now, is that a coincidence or did you kind of set this up or were you getting too close to the T cells perhaps? Uh... <laughs> um, totally coincidental. And it was $5 to buy a bottle of the oil from Amazon. So wow. I bought it, whacked it in experiments and they activated the immune cells that I study. So super coincidental, but it just kicked off this whole new project. Um, I at least had some evidence that, that these, these immune cells do play a role in allergies and particularly skin allergies. So I wasn't just going from nothing. Um, so they, they are responsible for part of our response to poison ivy and poison oak when you touch it and you oh, get wow. a rash. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I just dived into, Oh, we're actually putting a whole lot of oils on our skin. So yeah, that's, that's where they're coming from too. All right. So you studied this. You studied this particular oil as well as the tuberculosis one. And so do you think you've confirmed that that is what caused your allergy? I can't say with 100% certainty that that's what caused my allergy, but I'm very, very careful when I handle this oil in the lab. Um, but I, I now have enough evidence that these immune cells that I study, these T cells, they can recognize um, this oil and they're, they're certainly activated in its presence. So whether or not it caused my allergy, I don't know, but it potentially does cause allergy in people. And so there could be other oils out there, I guess, that are similar kind of um, risk to allergies or to immune responses that we don't want to have an immune response to. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we've, we being, you know, researchers have already found at least two now um, that are found in, in shampoos, other cosmetic products, um, so, yeah, they're certainly out there, these oils that can trigger allergies in people. Okay. And does that assume then, I guess, that the, the um, other oils that might be in other sunscreens perhaps are safer or they just need to be studied a bit? I'd say they need to be studied a little bit more. Um, and it does come down to shape as well. So if you think about, um, you know, these, these immune cells, they kind of have receptors that are like hands, hands that go around sort of feeling and, and probing. Now, these hands, you know, like our hands, we can only fit our hands around certain shape things. If, if something's too big, if it's just a weird shape, you can't fit your hand around it. And so, you know, there are only certain oils that would be the right kind of shape to, to fit into the hand of these T cells anyway. Okay. And so does that, I guess, then give us, does that give us some good understanding of how these T cells are working on oils and that help us with their tuberculosis problem, this better understanding? Yeah, I guess the, the more the more we figure out about these cells, like I said, they're kind of hipster in that, you know, one, they're not like normal T cells, but also I can count maybe maybe using both hands now because it's, it's gone up, but like I could count just like that there are probably under 10 labs in the whole world working on these specific immune cells that I work on. So hipster in that sense too. Not many people study them. So, so the more we know about them, like whether it's in the context of tuberculosis or allergy, the better we can, you know, understand and manipulate them. Excellent. They're also on the keto diet, which makes them um, hipster as well. I guess. <laughs> they, 
They wear moustaches. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They put um, butter in their coffee, that kind of thing. <laughs> so what's next then for your for your research? Um, I, I'm looking at drugs now, actually, because there are medicines that, that people have allergies to. And I'm looking at what sort of oils are in those medicines that, that people are having an allergic reaction to. So I'm, I'm actually working now with clinicians, getting getting samples from doctors and, and well, more getting samples from from doctors' patients um, and actually looking like in skin, in, in the skin blisters and also blood, seeing what's the difference between their immune cells? Like do they have more in the skin? Is that why they're getting a response? And I guess working out why why me? You know, like obviously mm. not everyone gets an allergy to everything. Um, so why would certain people be triggered and others not? That's okay. That's pretty good. Um, well, look, it sounds like that it is pretty pretty useful research, and you were into it before they were called these hipster <laughs> these hipster T cells, uh, which is always something to be to be proud of. Well, I wish you um, lots of luck for this future research. It sounds like there's a lot of benefit there for other people, and um, yeah, thanks for coming on to tell us about. It. And I hope you stick around for a bit to talk to Stu as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful, radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. It's pretty widely accepted that urban life can be very stressful, and this is not really surprising considering the human brain evolved in a completely different environment to a city. Um, And stress can have pronounced effects on mental health, and with more than half the world's human population living in cities, this can present major problems for public health authorities as well. Now, specific mental health problems associated with urban populations include things like anxiety and mood disorders, depression, and interestingly, schizophrenia is 56% more common in cities than in rural areas. So this this, uh, increased likelihood is after you've accounted for other factors like family history and drug abuse and other social and demographic, demographic confounding factors but one hypothesis for this increased prevalence of schizophrenia is the higher levels of social stress experienced in cities and there are theories about how natural environments may help prevent and reduce this stress so just the fact that city people have more of these mental health issues than people who live in the country suggests that possibly being in the country is a preventative uh, factor in, in, in this. Now, one hypothesis is called biophilia, and it suggests that humans have an inbuilt tendency to connect with natural settings as a result of our brains evolving in those settings. So it kind of makes sense from that point of view. Um, and the impact of nature on the psychological well-being of people has been measured numerous times in various ways, uh, you know, interviewing people and self-reporting and that sort of thing. But there's also physiological indicators of stress and they have been shown to be lower after exposing to nature. Like things like heart rates are lower after people experience nature, blood pressure is lower, 
cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone, are lower after people have some connection to nature. So there's two main theoretical frameworks to explain this. Um, one is called the attention restoration theory, and that is proposing that exposure to natural environments triggers involuntary attention to the surroundings. So you've got all this information coming into your brain and your brain processes all this involuntarily. So all of the, you know, the trees and the animals and the birds and the sky and the clouds and all these little bits of information, your brain processes them involuntarily. And that, according to this theory, supposedly allows the, uh, allows the active processes of attention to recover. So people, their, their brain sort of relaxes and they can get their faculties of, of thoughts back on track because these involuntary attention is, is sort of boosted. I was going to say, that's a, that's a really kind of counterintuitive idea when we think of, say, you know, city environments being too stimulating and too much stuff happening. Um, it's kind of suggesting there's more stuff happening in the countryside and that's better for our brains. Is that kind of what it's saying? It is. It is. It's, it's a really interesting theory, I think. Um, the other theory is the stress recovery theory, which looks more at the effect of nature on people's mood and that increased positive emotions from interacting with nature counteracts the negative emotions caused by the stress. Um, and that seems like mm. a pretty reasonable assumption. If, if being in nature makes you happy, you're going to be more happy. That's pretty straightforward. Um, but it doesn't really explain things. It doesn't really explain why being in nature makes you happy. It just says being happy is a good thing, which is... Like you said, yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure there's who doesn't want to be happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm sure there's people who don't like nature as well. Which how would mm. being in nature make someone who doesn't like nature happy? That's <laughs> that's not likely either. But um, a study using functional magnetic resonance imaging to look at brains after they'd been on a 90 minute walk in nature and a 90 minute walk in an urban environment found differences in the brain activity of the walkers as well as differences in self-reported thought processes. So in other words, people who went on a nature walk were happier and less worried than people who walked in the city. That was pretty much what they found with this um, fMRI study. But to further, further study this effect, some German scientists have used a range of methods to induce stress responses in study participants and then expose them to either a natural or an urban environment. And then they looked at the, the way different parts of the brains of these participants responded, again, using fMRI imaging, but they focused on parts of the brain that are linked to stress. So the, the original study, they just kind of looked at brain activity in general. And in this one, they were looking specifically at, at stress, uh, stress controlling parts of the brain or stress reactive parts of the brain. Um, so they just published their paper in Molecular Psychiatry um, and they found reduced activity in the amygdala in participants who spent an hour walking in nature, but they found no change in amygdala activity in people who walked around the city. So the amygdala is the part of the brain that processes strong emotions, including fear, and it is part of, it is the part of the brain that triggers the fight or flight response, which is pretty much what stress is, is that you've got this fight or flight response and nowhere for it to go. So you can't actually get it out of your system. Um, 
So the authors suggest that because of the lack of change in cognition-related areas of the brain, that this fits better with the stress recovery theory than with the attention restoration theory. So they couldn't find any any changes in the attention of these people. There's no change in their cognitive abilities, but there was a change in the amygdala activity. So they're basically saying people got less stressed when they went for a walk in nature. Nothing happened when they went for a walk in the city or they, they retained the same level of stress um, in both. because we're all frightened of cities, right? <laughs> Possibly. There's a, there's a lot of things to worry about in the city. I mean, there's a lot of things to worry about in nature as well. I mean, it's, you know, we don't want to just make out that nature is all one big happy no. uh, happy place to be at all times. Um, interestingly, they didn't identify any, any clear reason for why these effects were observed. For example, um, they don't know what sensors are, are giving us this information. So there might be you know, certain chemicals produced by plants or there might be particular colours that actually cause this response. And that's, you know, probably if we did more sort of imaging of the brain, you'd get more uh, information about what actually was triggering the brain response and the stress responses. Um, it's also not clear uh, from what they've written um, how much of an impact, and they did mention this in their discussion, they were saying that they don't really know how much of an impact seeing other people would have on the mood of the participants. So if they're in a city setting, there's people working, there's people commuting, there's, you know, people around them aren't particularly happy necessarily. Um, whereas the park that they uh, that they had these people walk in is in the city of Berlin, but it's a massive park in the city of Berlin. But being in the city of Berlin, it's also a site of various recreational activities. So there's lots of people in the park doing fun things having a good time and, you know, the, these authors have sort of looked at them and said, well, maybe that's actually going to have an impact on people's mood as well because, mm -hmm. you know, seeing other people who are happy generally will make you happier as well. So they're not sure if it's nature or if there's actually seeing other people having a good time makes others have a good time as well. So it's it, there, there are obviously some further areas to explore in this, um, in this kind of research. So, look, you know, I know we did uh, we did talk about the Ig Nobel Prizes um, last week, and, and I think, you know, this is one of those bits of research where it might seem obvious that going for a walk in the park will improve your mood. Um, but being able to show that it also reduces stress directly is worth understanding, even though it seems there's still a long way to go in figuring out exactly why or whether there's other factors, other cultural factors, other social factors that might be having an effect on, on people's stress levels. That's all. Great. So not quite a walk in the park after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
we would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search ranking so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now. We're at the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.